Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 45. Uh, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. 1986, NASA was planning to launch the Space Shuttle Challenger from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And it was a mission that was going to carry a school teacher, Krista McCullough. The night before the launch, NASA met with the engineers who had designed the solid rocket motors. And in that meeting, one of the engineers, Alan McDonald, uh, suggested that NASA delay uh, the launch because it was going to be a cold day in Florida. And he wasn't sure, they weren't sure that the O-rings uh, would work properly in the cold weather. In fact, they, they said they hadn't really been tested below 53 degrees. The problem is this launch had been delayed several times. And so NASA overruled their warning and, and asked them to sign off. Alan McDonald refused to sign, but his boss did. The next day, the shuttle launched, and 73 seconds into flight, it burst into flames. As they did the investigation on why that happened, it was because the O-rings had failed. The very thing that these engineers were concerned about actually happened. 
Question is, why with that kind of warning, why would NASA press on for this to happen, for the, for the flight to, to launch? And Alan McDonald claimed that NASA fell to the oldest and most basic sin of pride. He said this, NASA had become too successful. They had gotten by for a quarter of a century and had never lost a single person going into space. And they had rescued the Apollo 13 halfway to the moon when part of the vehicle blew up. Seemed like it was an impossible task, but they did it. So how could this cold O-ring cause a problem when they had done so much over the past years to be successful? All of the success gives you a little bit of arrogance you shouldn't have. But they hadn't stumbled yet, and they pressed on. NASA ignored the warning. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And a number of his hearers ignore it and even reject it. There are a number of warnings that you can reject in life that really don't have any substantial consequences. Ignoring the resurrection of Christ is not one of those. Whether you are a religious person, whether you're an irreligious person, whether you're a follower of Christ, whether you're not yet a follower of Christ, you can't ignore the historical event of Jesus' resurrection. Why? Why can't you ignore Jesus' resurrection? First, because it is the center of history. It's the center of history. When Paul arrived at Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogues to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. He went in to just participate in the synagogue service, which custom on the Sabbath was they would read two pieces of scripture. One would be from the law, first five books of the Bible, and the other would be from the prophets. And after they read two pieces of scripture, they would open it up for a person or for people to share a word of exhortation. So the synagogue leaders reached out to Paul, who was there, and asked Paul to share a word of exhortation. And so Paul took advantage of that and shared a sermon of sorts. And in verses 17 to 25, we didn't read it, but Paul there explains God's saving acts throughout Israel's history, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the exodus from Egypt, to the wilderness wanderings, to the conquest of Canaan, to the period of the judges, to David's kingship. And he lays out all this history to show that it all culminates in the arrival of Jesus. That all of it is just building up for the arrival of the promised one who would fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies that they had been reading weekly in their synagogues for a long time. And not only that, but in verses 27 to 29, Paul says, it wasn't that just Jesus' arrival fulfilled prophecy, but even the way 
the leaders condemned and executed Jesus had all been prophesied and was simply fulfilling God's promise. But what is the culmination? What's the culmination of the fulfillment of God's promises? Verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It is the key that unlocks the history of our world, past, present, and future. It is the key that unlocks everything. And what's interesting is that the world knows this. The world understands that there's a key that unlocks everything. The world may not understand that Jesus' resurrection is the key, but it understands that there is a key that unlocks a new and better world and that something's desperately wrong with this world. You say, how do we know this? Well, look at the movies that are produced. Look at the movies that are produced. Consider uh, Indiana Jones. Anybody like Indiana Jones movies? They're awesome. What's the basic plot line of Indiana Jones? Well, after Indiana Jones arrives in India, he's asked by desperate villagers to find a mystical stone. And this mystical stone will rescue their children from a cult that practices child slavery, black magic, human sacrifice in honor of a goddess. It's that mystical stone. And if they can just find that stone, it will unlock a better future and rescue their children. Or consider more recently the Disney movie Moana. And those of you who have children know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, I have no clue what that movie is. Let me explain it. It's about this girl, Moana. She's a strong-willed daughter of the chief of a Polynesian village. And, and, and the, the whole story is about the ocean choosing her, which is interesting with movies. You'll see Christian themes and polytheistic, all, all kinds of religions kind of morph into it, right? But the ocean chooses her, right, to reunite this mystical relic with this goddess Tafiti. And so when trouble strikes her island, she sets sail. She goes find this, uh, this legendary demigod, uh, Maui, and they go and try to get this mystical relic back into the heart of Tafiti. And there's that end of the movie. It's actually, it's a, it's a beautiful scene where she takes the, this, this key relic and puts it into Tafiti. And instantly, all the dead, dark, barren lands start to teem with green and teem with life. Mystical stone, mystical relic, the key that unlocks everything. How how and why are these plot lines so similar? Because everyone's made in the image of God. And everyone knows, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you want nothing to do with Christianity or nothing to do with organized religion, Everyone's aware there is something wrong with this world and that there's something, some key that has to be found that can unlock renewal and newness in the world being set right. 
everyone understands this. That key that everyone's searching for, that key is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the key. It's the center of history. It's the key to understanding the end of history. I love what Paul writes in verse 30. Leading up to verse 30, he speaks of how Jesus was condemned, executed, laid in a tomb, and then verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. The situation was looking very bleak to the disciples, very hopeless when they laid Jesus in the tomb, but God raised him. When I came to Christ in grad school, when I came to trust Jesus for the first time, started reading the Bible for the first time, started going to a Bible study for the first time. And I remember early on, I was encouraged to have a life verse. And, uh, and I picked a life verse of sorts. This is a great life verse. This is a wonderful life verse. But God raised him from the dead. My family is plagued with mental illness, but God raised him. My marriage fell apart, but God raised him. I got fired from my job, but God raised him. My loved one just died, but God raised him. I fell into horrible addiction, but God raised him. The world is not the same since the pandemic, but God raised him. Another school shooting, but God raised him. Just heard horrific news of genocide in another country, but God raised him can't seem to catch a break over the past month, but God raised him. Jesus' resurrection is the center of history, and it's the center of your life, and it transforms despair into hope. Why? Why can't you ignore Jesus' resurrection? It's not only the center of history, it's the center of your life. And it transforms your despair into hope because it declares your freedom. His resurrection declares your freedom. Verses 38 to 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. These two verses are basically the summary of Paul's view of the resurrection that he explains in a lot more detail in his other letters. Verse 38, through this risen Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Most of the time, when we talk about forgiveness of sins, we describe it as being accomplished by Jesus' death. Right? Jesus took our sin, and he paid the penalty for it by dying on the cross. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, 
He says, you're still stuck in your sins. Why? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he was a mere man like every other self-proclaimed savior who died on the cross through Roman crucifixion. And there were a lot of them that proclaimed to be the savior. If Jesus didn't rise, he was just one of another. And there's no mere man that could forgive the sins of the world. Only a man fully God and fully man can forgive the sins of the world. You ever had the experience where you go to uh, pay a bill in person? I know it's rare these days. Pay bills online, I get it. But have you ever had that experience? You go to pay a bill in person. Maybe it's a doctor's office or something. And they receive your payment. And this is even more rare, but it happened to me not but a couple months ago. They take a stamp and they stamp it in red and it says paid in full. That's a beautiful stamp. Because it means I'm no longer in debt. The debt has been paid off. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the stamp. It's the stamp that declares paid in full, meaning your sins have been paid in full. You don't bear that debt anymore. You are free from that debt. You are forgiven. That's why the resurrection is so important. And that's why it's the stamp that declares you have been forgiven. Not that you feel forgiven. That's a whole other story. But the stamp of Jesus' resurrection says, it doesn't matter how you feel if you trust Jesus. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. But that's not all the resurrection accomplishes. You need something more than just your debt paid off, right? If your debt gets paid off, where are you at? You're at zero. You have nothing to live on now, even though your debt's paid off. Verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word freed here in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, is justified. The word is justified. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything. To be justified means to be declared right or to be declared righteous. The Jews thought that the key, back to the key, right, that the key to unlocking God's blessings and the key to being declared right was the law of Moses and keeping the law of Moses. They believed that they could keep the law of Moses, God would pour out his blessings. They believed that they kept the law of Moses, they would be declared right, that that was the key. And it's one of the reasons, actually, they, they struggled to believe that Jesus was the Messiah because they saw him as a lawbreaker. In fact, most, many times on the Sabbath, he would get accused of breaking God's law because he didn't follow all of their man-made laws that went well beyond what God had prescribed. Jesus, knowing this, said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think 
that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfilled God's law perfectly so that by believing in him by faith, his perfect record would get credited to you or imputed to you, that you would stand righteous before God. Being declared righteous in God's sight is by faith, believing, not by works, doing. It's by faith. I want you to imagine a criminal who has been released from prison after serving many years in prison. He serves his sentence. And so he is freed from the prison. The punishment has been paid. But now he stands outside those prison walls, a free man, but with no resources to live off of. He has no job. He has no money. He has no car. He has no home. In some ways, this prisoner that's been freed is now stuck in a second prison of sorts. It's the prison of, of, of shame and of insecurity. A man with no resources. I think that most believers, for the most part, embrace the freedom from punishment for sin. I think most believers understand that Jesus has died on the cross to fully pay for sins. And that most of us understand, at least intellectually, that we are forgiven, that the debt has been paid. But I think most believers struggle in this second prison of sorts, this second prison of, of shame and of insecurity. Shame and insecurity, and it's born out of functionally attaching your righteousness to keeping the law. And so if you're not keeping the law and you're failing miserably, shame and insecurity kind of takes over your life and you become mired in it. It's born out of thinking that we're declared righteous by acting righteous versus we're declared righteous by believing in Jesus, by faith in him. And by faith in him, we are declared righteous. And so we get stuck. Yes, I'm forgiven. The debt's been paid. I understand that. The debt's been paid, but now I'm sitting at zero with the shame and insecurity because I'm constantly reminded of my unrighteousness and when we forget this second piece, not just forgiven, but justified, declared righteous, when we forget the justification, we enter into this morbid introspection. Over and over, this morbid introspection of our failures, of our acting unrighteously. 
and it leaves us in no man's land. I think functionally where it lands is, I know God forgives me. I know he forgives me. But deep down, I think he's really disappointed in me. Right? I'm forgiven, I'm debt free, but he's really disappointed in me because I, I continue to fail. And so we live in this, this insecurity and this shame, and it brings us to the point of saying, oh, he forgives me, but he certainly doesn't delight in me or delight over me or rejoice over me. There's no way. So we live in this no man's land. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't just declare your freedom from punishment for sin. The resurrection from, of Jesus declares your righteousness before God. It frees you from both prisons, the prison of punishment for sin and the prison of insecurity and shame for your unrighteous living. It frees you from both prisons such that God's statement of delight over his son Jesus in the gospels. When he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. that that statement of delight is declared over you. Not by how you're living, but by your faith in Christ. Now you say, well, then it doesn't matter how I live. No, no, when you are living under that delight of Christ's righteousness being credited to you by the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, that's what begins to transform the heart to say, no, I, I want to live righteously before God. I don't have to, I want to. And it transforms your heart. Why can't you ignore Jesus' resurrection? Because his resurrection is the center of history. His resurrection declares your freedom. Finally, his resurrection reveals your heart. It reveals your heart in a very profound way. Right after Paul gets to announcing this amazing news in verses 38 and 39, forgiveness is proclaimed to you. You're justified. You're declared righteous. He then moves into this warning in verses 40 and 41. He says, beware. Here's the warning. Therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is a quote from Habakkuk chapter one, verse five. Through the prophet, God warned Israel of the rise of Nebuchadnezzar and of the invasion that was coming. He warned them of this great event. They ignored it. Now here, Paul is proclaiming this great event, the resurrection of Jesus. And many of his hearers ignored it and rejected it. Because one week later, after Paul is, gives this word of exhortation in the synagogue, they loved it. They said, come back next week, Paul. So he comes back to the synagogue the next week and the whole city, so to speak, gathers. This this synagogue is packed. And it's here in verse, 44, verse 45, we learn, but when the Jews saw the crowds, 
they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. That word revile is a really strong word. They didn't just reject what Paul was saying about the resurrection. They passionately rejected it. You say, why? Because they were filled with jealousy. The Gentiles were overrunning their synagogue, probably even taking their seats in the synagogue. It was standing room only. And these Jews who had worked so hard to keep the law of Moses, thinking that if we keep the law, the blessing will fall upon us and we'll be declared right. Watch these Gentiles coming in who don't know the law of God, don't love the law of God, and don't follow the law of God. Being justified, declared right by simply believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not fair, they thought. It's not fair. See, they believed that they were right and Paul was wrong. They were right and Paul was wrong and all of these Gentiles are following the one who was wrong. So it left them angry, left them jealous. And meanwhile, the Gentiles are grateful and rejoicing. The condition in the heart of the Jews that caused them to reject the resurrection is the same condition in your heart that functionally causes you to reject the resurrection of Jesus. You say, what's that condition? What's that condition? When you embrace the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you lose the right to be right. Now, without knowing you personally, some of you I do, most of you I don't, I can tell you one thing you love, and that is to be right. That's the human condition. We love to be right, and yet, when you embrace the resurrection of Christ by faith, you lose the right to be right with respect to yourself and with respect to others. With respect to self, you lose the right to make yourself right. God has to declare you right through the work of his son, Jesus. You lose the right to make others right. That belongs to Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Justice belongs to him, not you. Let me give you a hypothetical situation. I'm sure this doesn't apply to any marriages in this room, but you know, I'll take a crack at it, okay? And if you're not married, uh, apply this to a friendship or apply this to any relationship. I want you to imagine that you and your spouse get into an argument. And in this argument, you believe that you're right and they're wrong. Again, I know you have to imagine hard on this one. Okay? You intellectually know it takes two to tango. So you know you're not perfectly innocent. But you know that the major wrong, the lion's share of the wrong, belongs with your spouse. 
Now, in that situation, what do you believe will bring you happiness? What do you believe will bring freedom? It's your spouse admitting they're wrong and you're right. I mean, that's really, functionally at a heart level, that's what you believe. I will be happy when my spouse sees what he or she has done wrong and sees that I'm right. That's what will make me happy. That's a functional rejection of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, intellectually, you won't say that. That's a functional rejection because you've retained the right to be right. You have retained the right to be right. When you embrace the resurrection of Jesus, you lose the right to be right. You lose the right to make others right. It's not your responsibility. You lose the right to make yourself right. God has to declare that you're righteous and that you're right through Jesus Christ. You will never find consistent and lasting joy by retaining the right to be right because you don't have the power to make others right or even to make yourself right. It's an uphill battle you will never win and you will be committed to a life of anger, jealousy, and frustration when you retain that right and functionally reject the resurrection. You're locked in a prison. You are locked in a prison. The only way that you find consistent and lasting joy is by embracing the resurrection of Christ and losing the right to be right. And once you've lost the right to be right, now you're free to forgive and to be forgiven just as Christ has forgiven you. A teacher once told each of her students to bring a clear plastic bag and a sack of potatoes into school. And she told the students, I want you to recall every person who has hurt you. And for every person who has hurt you, that you refuse to forgive, I want you to write their name on the potato and the date, and I want you to put it in your clear plastic bag. And then I want you to carry this bag around everywhere you go. You gotta put it beside your bed at night. You gotta put it beside the, yourself in the car, at the car seat. You gotta put it beside your desk at school. You gotta lug this thing around everywhere. Now, as you can imagine, these bags filled up pretty quickly. It became a real pain to carry around. And eventually the potatoes became moldy, smelly, started sprouting eyes. That's what your prison looks like. If you're gonna retain the right to be right and functionally reject Jesus' resurrection, that's the prison you're gonna live in. It's the prison you're gonna live in. Lewis Smedes says this about forgiveness. To forgive is to set a prisoner free. 
and discover that that prisoner was you. Jesus' resurrection is the center of history. It's the center of your life. It declares your freedom so that you don't have to be right. And you get to forgive. And you get to be forgiven just as Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, the resurrection of your son Jesus is beautiful. It is the key that unlocks everything. It's the key that unlocks past, present, the end of history. It's the key that unlocks our freedom from sin. And the declaration of our righteousness And Father, it is the key that frees us from having to be right. Oh, Father, in a room of this size, there are so many conversations that need to happen around forgiveness. So much confession around the hurt that comes from claiming to be right. Oh, Father, would you soften our hearts? Would you soften our hearts to the work of your son, Jesus, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet claiming to be right, while we were yet claiming our independence and not needing you, Jesus, you went and died on the cross for us. What a beautiful picture of love. Father, would you humble us to receive Jesus, to believe, to trust Jesus, to see his resurrection as the key to unlocking everything. And Father, I pray that there would be reconciliation that happens in relationships through this humility and softness. Father, we would experience the freedom of losing the right to be right and experiencing forgiveness. Father, as we sing to you now, would you take our feeble and our weak words as praise and would you fill us with the joy of your Holy Spirit? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.